In today's lecture, I'm going to briefly cover some of the most momentous events of the early 20th century. World War I, the Russian Revolution, and trying to tie that into World War II as well. The study guide terms are Bolshevism, the Second Thirty Years' War, and the Shoah versus the Holocaust. There are five questions. As strange as it might seem, I'm actually going to start sort of between World War I and World War II with something that is a little bit closer to my heart and understanding sort of the, the struggles and the, the progress and the achievements and also the great, great cost and violence that we can associate with the first generation of the 20th century. And here I'm talking about the Russian revolutions. Revolutions, plural with an S. Because there were three, three climactic events in the space of one, one generation. So when I say generation, I mean, roughly speaking, in about 20 years. Uh, in 1905, 1917, and then late 1917 to the winter of 1918. Another way to think about them is, in 1905, the last Tsar of the Russian Empire, Nicholas II, was forced to concede to members of the aristocracy connected with organizing members of the general public basically to start a constitutional assembly, something approaching a parliament or a congress, some gathering of political elites whose job it would be to write a constitution, because Russia had never really had a constitution before, whose job it would be to create new laws, um, all sort of like to be made and enforced by the real the, the royalty, the real power, right? Tsar Nicholas II. So this did not automatically lead to troubles, right? It's very important to understand that for 10 years, the Constitutional Assembly was struggling to sort of make itself relevant and not very successfully. Uh, however, I want you to understand that this did not itself caused the Russian revolution that's more famous, or the 1917-1918 revolutions. Those were very, very much the product of the Great War, World War I, right? The aggressions of the German Empire on its eastern and western fronts. And so the war going as badly as it did for Russia in 1917, the Tsar was forced to abdicate. Um, but even still, like that was the revolution that raised the spirits of Europe, I would say. There was a, a general euphoria, a sense of finally a way forward. Russia is going to enter the 20th century. Uh, there's going to be better equality, better access to rights, um, a, a stronger economy, better health care, better education. And all of that comes crashing to a halt when the Bolsheviks take control, right? Um, the Whatever you want to call them, the communists, um, the social revolutionaries, um, the SRs, the SARs, um, basically the folks under Lenin and Stalin, so-called Marxists, um, who sort of culminate this, this revolution with the capture and then eventual murder of the royal family. One, one thing that does unite all three of these Russian revolutions is a sense of labor struggles. The labor problem is not one that I think the average American is, is able to really appreciate because we are living in, a, in the world created by 
labor unions. Even if you've never been in a union, and if no one in your family has been unionized, the labor problem in this country is much, much less serious than it was at the time of the Russian Revolution. It is no longer an everyday story to hear of this or that mining or factory concern attacking its own workers, leading to the deaths of hundreds and sometimes thousands of people agitating for better work environment, um, some sort of vacation time, better hours, better support for their family. So this labor problem in the Russian Empire was just as fierce. I think most Americans don't realize how industrially developed the heavily populated parts of Russia were, right? The, the factories were sort of uber-capitalist hellscapes. And yeah, it's these workers who organized, who were the, the fomenting force, the, the cause of the first Russian Revolution in 1905. Peasants, let's call them former peasants, factory workers, um, they are the ones who are shutting down the factories. They close down the newspapers, they cut off the electricity, and they march on the Winter Palace, where the troops are ordered to fire on them. Death numbers are unknown, something more than a hundred and less than a thousand. So-called Bloody Sunday, right? When these workers have marched in a religious procession, right? Led by priests bearing icons, depictions of Jesus Christ, and the Virgin Mary, hoping to speak with the Tsar and sort of, you know, calling his bluff, like, you wouldn't shoot your own people. Here we are just asking for, a, you know, bread and a better living wage and just to not be thrown aside like so much kindling into the fire. And the Tsar called their bluff. And like, yes, in fact, we will order the troops to fire on you. However, such was the result of this mass murder that the political capital that the Tsar thought he had sort of dried up, which leads to greater aid to workers, um, giving the, the General Assembly more authority and emancipation of the, in Russian, the Inorodzi, right? Sort of like the non-Russian citizens of the Russian Empire. Inarodzi is another way of saying like non-Russians, people who are outsiders, which is not a very pleasant way to talk about citizens of the Russian Empire who happen to not speak Russian, whether they be Tatars or Jews or Poles or Finns. However, there's no representative national legislature created. The run-up to the 1905 revolution was a manifesto that came out in, in December before that bloody Sunday. Um, essentially a manifesto calling for the people to be given more authority, more aid to workers, and emancipation of the non-Russian population of the Russian Empire. The non-Russian population being the so-called Inorodzi. Uh, this is another way of saying basically like Finnish people, Polish people, Jewish people, Tatars, those who are not ethnically or religiously or otherwise identifying as Russian. Also calling for the abolition of, of government censorship. Um, and so, in aid of this manifesto, most of the workers in most of the factories go on strike. That strike was put down with, with bloodshed. Um, and blood begets blood begets blood. Um, the governor general of Moscow, Sergei Alexandrovich, is assassinated. Um, his body largely is disintegrated. Very famously, some of his fingers are found on a nearby roof. Um, the bomber had expected to die in the explosion. But he did not, and so he is able to be sort of gathered up and tried and eventually 
punished for his crimes. Now, this person is a Marxist socialist. They're not yet calling themselves communists or Bolsheviks in the sense that we would recognize them. Um, but after the assassination of the governor general, who happened to be the uncle of Nicholas II, Nikolai II, the last Tsar of the Russian Empire, responds basically granting the terms of the revolution. Yes, we will have a, an assembly of sorts, not exactly a parliament. Yes, there will be greater religious tolerance for non-Christians. Yes, there will be freedom of speech, granting some language rights so that Finnish people will be allowed to teach their children Finnish and Poles Polish and Jews um, something. Uh, Tatars, Tatar. Um, and so this the manifesto presented to the Tsar in 1905 grants the demands, right? There's a, a general feeling of, of euphoria and joy and just a sense of achievement. But the Tsar is very clearly stating that this is all happening under duress. He doesn't actually want to give these rights. This is doing this to avoid a massacre because he has an insufficient control over the population. He, he quote, felt sick with shame at this betrayal of the dynasty, and the betrayal was complete, end quote. The betrayal, that is, of his own people, right? He feels betrayed that they have so little trust for him. Still, the 10 years between 1905 revolution and World War I is a time of exceeding change, progressive developments in Russia. Um, so even though most people think of Russia as in just always backward, always undeveloped. Um, yeah, there's a reason that World War I and World War II failed to completely annihilate that country. World War I was a very, very big deal, like in terms of, of manpower, in terms of material, in terms of mass death. And Russia's role in, in both of these wars was far greater than that of the United States. I'll say that again. Russia's role in the First World War and the Second World War far outstripped that of the United States. We have this sense that the United States is the single most powerful actor in the world, and whether or not that is the case, in these two sort of century-defining wars, the United States was not the main actor. In both of them, the main actor was Russia, the actor that basically brought both wars to a successful conclusion. Um, both wars were caused by Germany, mobilizing against Europe in general, France in particular, and in both wars, it's Russia's involvement that prevents total German victory. The Eastern Front, which is to say the border between Germany and Russia, is largely forgotten in our own history books. Germany expected to handle France. Right, while their allies would handle the Russian border. In World War I, their allies meant the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and in World War II, it meant their allies that they conquered, Romanians and Hungarians and Serbians and Bulgarians and so on and so forth. In a certain way of thinking, we can consider World War I and World War II as two slightly different versions of the same war. With the start of World War I in Russia comes a massive military buildup. The Tsar is going to war, and the government of the country and its economy is put on a sort of war economy track. The communists, the socialists, are nowhere to be seen, right? They are rounded up and exiled, those who don't put themselves into exile. And so the country has an ability to sort of stop the German advance on the Eastern Front with some success. 
there's a great deal of territory that is lost, but still, World War I is not a war of total Russian failure, as it's often sort of assumed. But the economic crisis increases. So that we have not communists, not socialists who are agitating for a better life, not the workers in some factory, but it's the families of the soldiers. So here's a, a picture, right? Very famous picture of the Russian Revolution of 1917, where we have soldiers' families, right? Their widows, their wives, their mothers, their sisters, their sons, their brothers, carrying signs on the street that say, feed the children of the defenders of the homeland, increase the rations to soldiers' family. And at this point, there is still a real possibility of a peaceful resolution to this. They're not saying end the war. They want to defeat the Germans. But they also don't feel that their government is doing an adequate job of protecting them and feeding them. And that same betrayal that the Tsar felt in 1905, he feels again and essentially washes his hand of the whole affair and abdicates. Says, fine, you don't think I can do this job? That's fine. But he doesn't say that the royal family is abdicating. He says, let's see if my little brother, Michael, Mikhail, can take over. And his little brother says, that's fine, but let's actually put together a constitutional assembly. And so in, in 1917, there's basically, the Russian government is on hold. The, the military is still at the front, still defending the Russian empire from German advances, while a election, a massive election is held to sort of put together the constitutional assembly that will create the new state. There is massive involvement of the people, okay? Like these elections are held all throughout the empire. Several elections are held, delegates are collected, but still, I don't think the Russian people realize how weakened the state was in this point, right? The Tsar is no longer in power. There's no longer one person who's in control of everything. There's now a provisional government and it's into that black hole of, of, of weakness that the Bolsheviks arrive. Lenin arrives in April by secret train traveling through Europe on German support because Germany understands that if, if the communists take over, that, that's it for Russia, right? They actually are most concerned because most of their, their men and materiel is wrapped up in the Eastern Front. If they don't have to fight the Russians, they have some chance of success continuing the war. And so we have the so-called summer, the July days, right? The July days of, of 1917 in which the provisional government essentially falls apart. Um, there's several coup attempts, one of which is more successful than the others. The Bolsheviks take power and announce by the end of summer and the early autumn that they are in control, right? That they have taken control of the government and the government is now going to be controlled by small independent councils. Right? These are going to be councils made up of, of communists or socialists or Marxists or Leninists, whatever you want to call them. And this start to the revolution, you need to understand, is absolutely without violence. It is a bloodless revolution. Not a single person is going to lose their lives because the Russian government has already essentially ceased to exist. The Bolsheviks are basically just taking over. It is a bloodless revolution, one that will be defended with extreme violence. So even though no one dies on day one, by day 50, the, the loss of life is already probably measured in the hundreds of thousands, if not, if not more. 
It says here in Russian um, that the provisional government has been deposed. State power has passed into the hands of the organ of the Petrograd Soviet Council of Workers and Soldiers and the Revolutionary Military Committee, which heads the Petrograd proletariat. Just remember that word from our class of Marxism and, and the garrison. The cause of the people was fought for. The immediate offer of a democratic peace to Germany, the abolition of land ownership, worker control of industry, the establishment of a council government, or if you prefer, a Soviet government. And this cause has been secured. Long live the revolution of the workers, soldiers, and peasants. And so here we have the so-called Russian Revolution under Lenin and Stalin, Gorky, Bukharin, and Trotsky. Um, the most famous document that comes out of this is an essay on what exactly is Soviet rule, uh, Soviet rule, or if you prefer, council rule. Um, so when I say that this is a bloodless revolution, I mean this only in terms of the initial violence, right? Um, the, the government is not able to prevent the Bolsheviks from taking over, but once they take over, terror ensues. Uh, consider this telegram of Lenin to his underlings. Comrades, the peasant uprising in your five districts must be crushed without pity. You must make examples of these people. One, hang, and I mean hang publicly so that people see it, at least 100 peasant leaders, those rich bastards and known bloodsuckers. Publish their names, seize all their food, single out the hostages per my instructions in yesterday's telegram. Do all this so that for miles around people see it all, understand it, tremble, and tell themselves that we are killing the bloodthirsty rich peasants and that we will continue to do so. Yours, Lenin, P.S., find tougher people. And if you find it odd to hear discussion of rich peasants, then good, you're, you're paying attention, right? Like, what does it mean to be a rich peasant? Basically, in every village, there's one family that has a little bit more money than everybody else, and we, we've, we're going to villainize them. We're going to make it as though they're the villains. The reason that your life is so crappy has nothing to do with a war or an inefficient government is because one among you is slightly richer than the others. Let's all kill that person. And so ensues the Russian Civil War which bleeds out into Eastern Europe and is sort of wrapped up in the end of World War I, which includes um, violence throughout Eastern and Southeastern Europe between the former Ottoman Empire, the former Russian Empire, the former Austro-Hungarian Empire. And all of this could be nicely tied up in a single word if we wanted to, right? Like, we should consider, how is it that we name our wars? Like, when you're in war, it's just the war. You only need a name to differentiate it from other wars. Outside observers can give it a very specific name, right? It's later historians who name the wars. We say World War I, World War II, the Vietnam War, the Korean War. This is not how they're known in the moment. And in, in some very real ways, there's just one long war from, let's say, 1914 to 1991 this uh, war between the East and the West, between democracy, so-called, and authoritarianism, so-called, that will include the Korean War, the Chinese Civil War, the Spanish Civil War, World War I and II. All of this can be seen as this general struggle between liberal democracy, so-called, fascism, and communism, this sort of three-way struggle. Now, the fascists are more or less out of the way by the end of the 40s with some small hangers on. And we have this sense now that what happens in 1991 is the final fall of communism. And yet, again, Cuba, China, 
Vietnam, these countries, these nominal Soviet or at least communist Marxist socialist countries still endure. Um, so rather than talking about a, a war that stretches from 1914 to 1991, I think it's more useful to at least combine World War I, World War II, the Russian Civil War, the Greek and Turkish Wars, all of these wars in Europe between 1914 and 1945, because it's all essentially centered around Germany and its neighbors, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the French and British Empires, the Russian Empire, and yeah, it ends with the total defeat of fascism, if nothing else, right? That, that It's also marked in many, reg many respects by this new inability to distinguish soldiers from civilians, right? We have mass deaths ordered by all of the leaders at this time. Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Mussolini, Churchill, Roosevelt, Hirohito, Lenin, all of them are ordering the mass death of civilians. Not in the same way, and we have this idea of distinguishing that, well, no, they're not all Hitler, sure. But all of them sign off on the mass death of civilians, not just soldiers, civilians. So let me bring this back to our discussions on nationalism, right? I'd like to give you an example here from a typical high school textbook on the causes of World War I, right? I'm not saying that this is true, right? We're looking at this to kind of critique it. So in this textbook, World War I is essentially caused by the Balkans, right? Quote, unquote, a restless region, quote, unquote, a powder keg of Europe, because there's just, you know, there, there's too many people there. They're having economic difficulties, and there's a lot of nationalism, a lot of hatred and distrust between the sort of Slavs on one side and Germanic or Turkic people on the others, right? Quote, because the assassin... The, the assassin who, who murdered the Archduke Ferdinand was a Serbian, right? The understanding is that now this is a nationalist concern because it is Serbia, the whole nation of Serbia, who is now at fault for this one nationalist's actions. This is the real danger of nationalism, where he basically is now going to be somehow implicating all Serbs. And sure, right, if you look at a map of, like, the Austro-Hungarian Empire in terms of, of its ethnic um, jumbled mess, we can say, well, of course they can't live in peace. And remember what I mentioned, this, this sense of looking at like tribal maps of Africa and say, well, yeah, they'll never be at peace because they're just too mixed up. But we can play the same game with France, right? Here's a typical um, 1800s map of the languages and ethnic identities within France. Now we think of France as being entirely French. Right? So all of this is very much a kind of arbitrary decision to say, well, you know, we don't talk about the restive uh, powder keg that is France. Right? It's, it's the Balkans that's the problem. And I'm just, I want you to realize that that's not very nuanced. And what really sets World War I aside is not its nationalism per se, but because of nationalism, we, we now can equate the military with the civilians. Because the understanding is that all civilians are supporting the military. So you don't just shoot people with guns. In fact, you don't want to shoot people with guns because that's dangerous. Ideally, you're going to shoot the people who don't have guns because they won't be able to defend themselves. And we have this idea that like there's tanks and mustard gas, like biological weapons, and there's also machine guns. But it's also the last war that sees people like carrying lances and riding around on horseback. So... In this next section here, 
I'm just going to leave it to you to watch each one of the videos. Uh, let me go over them real quickly. So there's a video um, which is basically colorizing and modernizing footage taken from World War I. Um, there's a section here where we have British soldiers talking about their memories of dealing with uh, captured German soldiers. Um, there's another video on sort of the, the very horrific injuries suffered in World War I, that, but thanks to the advances of medicine, we now have these terribly scarred individuals who survive. Right? The thing about the difference between World War I and, say, the Civil War is most of the people who are you know, attacked, who are suffering the bullet wounds and um, having pieces of their bodies destroyed by shrapnel or the shells of artillery, they just die. They die of infection. Um, but in World War I, thanks to the advent of, of soap and certain more powerful medicines, people are surviving without a face. People are surviving with pieces of their bodies knocked off. And so we have this new rise of sort of prosthetics, which might be very familiar to us today. This idea of, you know, when Americans go off to fight wars today in these smaller regions, they also tend to survive their injuries and come home forever marked. Um, the third video is this um, historian's basic, you know, uh, laying out the theory that yes, World War I and World War II are essentially connected. Um, he suggests that World War II is the, the more dangerous war in terms for civilians. I, I'm not quite sure I buy this. It's more a, a factor of the increased abilities of, of bombing, right? It's, it's carpet bombing that really makes World War II stand out. But it, it's, it's not that there was no bombing in World War I. World War One just didn't have that capacity for for extreme um, violence on the part of the Air Force. Uh, the fourth video is one on just laying out the the numbers of the dead in World War Two. I that is probably the most um, important sort of like uh, quantitative reasoning that I want you to uh, sort of appreciate in this class. And the last one is going to be the most difficult to watch. It is a dis the memory of the Holocaust or the Shoah. Again, the Holocaust is how we tend to use it in English, this term for um, the final solution, the attempt by the Nazis to wipe out uh, the Jews of Europe. Um, what you need to understand is more than half of the dead of the Holocaust were not in camps, right? We, we, we think of Auschwitz or Bergen-Belsen or Dachau. Um, but it was this war of the Eastern Front where you have large sections of the German military, the so-called Einsatzgruppen, which are not involved in the Western Front at all, whose job it is to march behind the front line. Right? The front line is actually fighting other people with guns, right? So as the front line sort of moves ahead, this second front line comes along. Other people with guns and tanks and lethal weapons, whose job it is to just depopulate the area. They're specifically targeting Jews, but not only Jews. And when they come into Kiev, we, we see this mass slaughter of, of the Jewish people there. And again, this, it's not known, right? So the Jewish people are and, and others who are gathered up assume they're going to be sent away to prison camps, right? We, we don't yet have the sense that the Nazis are here to absolutely just kill every single person they see. 
Um, and again, this is not something that we have no evidence for, right? There's a, a great deal of, of horrific evidence for these things. And I apologize to show this to you, um, but at the same time, I think it's, it's necessary. So if we're quoting Fritz Hofer, quote, how many layers of bodies there were on top of each other, I couldn't see. I was so astonished and dazed by the sight of the twitching, blood-smeared bodies that I could not properly register the details. In addition to the two marksmen, there was a packer at either entrance to the ravine. These packers were Schutzpolizen, whose job it was to lay the victim on top of the other corpses so that all the marksmen had to do was fire a single shot. When the victims came along the path to the ravine and at the last moment saw this terrible scene themselves, they cried out in terror. But at the very next moment, they were being knocked over by the packers and made to lie down with the others. The next group of people could not see this terrible scene because it's happening around the corner and in a ravine. Most people put up a fight when they had to undress, and there was a lot of screaming and shouting. The Ukrainians didn't take any notice. They just drove them down as quickly as possible in the ravine through the entrances. The language in this last video, by the way, is, is Russian. There's an interesting history to why Jewish people in the Russian Empire um, would be speaking Russian. Again, many might have been speaking Yiddish. Um, some of the more learned among them were, were, of course, literate in Hebrew or would, would speak it in the terms of, of using prayers, but the modern language of Hebrew that the spoken Israel doesn't really exist yet at, the, at that time. Um, so when you're listening to this, I, I want to understand that this is, it's in, it's in Russian, for what that matters. I'm fairly confident that this will be the darkest and most depressing of the lectures we'll have this semester, but uh, don't hold me to that.